Welcome back to the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast by Clay Temple Media, where we discuss the work of the great science fiction writer Gene Wolfe, one story at a time. I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDorman. This episode, we're back talking about the last Gene Wolfe short story selected by our Patreon supporters. Before we start on the masterpiece, The Fifth Head of Cerberus. So today, it's The Recording, which was originally published in the magazine of fantasy and science fiction in 1972. And it was reprinted in the story collection, Stories from the Old Hotel. It's also found in the collection, The Best of Gene Wolfe, which is surprising to me because this story feels just like a perfectly average story. It's something out of the ordinary for Wolfe, at least. I think we're going to tease some of what's going on in this story, why it's published in a science fiction and fantasy magazine, why it's part of The Best of Gene Wolfe in the discussion. I don't have too much else to say about it at this point. So, Glenn, why don't you take us through the recap? Yeah, let's do it. The recording is a first-person narrative about a record that the narrator has owned for 50 years, but has never played until five minutes ago. When the narrator was a small boy, in those dear dead days of Model A Ford touring cars, horse-drawn milk trucks, and hand-cranked ice cream freezers, he was part of a large extended family. He had several uncles, all his father's brothers, but his favorite was Uncle Bill, and it is Uncle Bill to whom this record belongs. This introduction of the story before we get into the action, and I should say this is a really short story, does a lot of setting the scene, setting the time, setting the place, and it's explicitly probably 1930. This is my read of the story, both based on the days of Model A Ford Touring Cars, which came out in 1930, and the recording, which is maybe the only question in this story that is revealed at the end, which is, what is the record? But there's a line here about the extended family that I want to read out loud because it's going to come up in our discussion. Our narrator is describing his uncles, and he says this. He says, I had an uncle. As a matter of fact, I had several, all brothers of my father, and all, like him, tall and somewhat portly men with faces stamped, as my own is, in the image of their father, the lumberman and land speculator who built this Victorian house for his wife. We're also given a sense here of the affluence of this family in 1930, which is a theme of this story, and it speaks to the narrator's examination of his childhood as, we'll soon find out, a spoiled child. Right. We learn here in the opening that Uncle Bill is not only tall, but he's he's portly. In fact, he really, he's a fat man. And we see him and his brothers eating a lot of food in this story. He's also described as someone who loves beer and was probably tipsy most of the time. And we also learn that Uncle Bill was retired, even though he was far younger than many men who still work. All of this pointing to uh, the affluence of the family, as you suggest. But because he's retired, he is around a lot, and he's also a lot of fun. He was generous with small gifts and his time, and our narrator loved him. We're also told a little bit more of the narrator's relationship to his uncle, that great fear of older, bigger men that's also married to your desire to impress them or for them or to spend time with them. And it's clear that Uncle Bill and our narrator have a great relationship. But the narrator does say this, I was a little frightened of him, as a child may be of the painted, rowdy clown at a circus. This, I suppose, 
because of some incident of drunken behavior witnessed at the edge of infancy and not understood. And I just love this. This is Wolf really digging into something that we're going to see a lot in Fifth Head, which is this Proustian sense of memory, this involuntary recall, which is really a little bit of what's happening in this story. Yeah, that's a great comment. I'm looking forward to digging into that in the discussion because I noticed some other connections uh, to other wolf work here as well. Well, let's get into the real action of this story, such as there is. One summer day, Uncle Bill promised the narrator a present of his own choosing, and our narrator desperately wanted a record. His parents had a record player, but they wouldn't let him play any records because they feared that he would damage them. But if he had a record of his own, that argument would no longer be sufficient to forbid him from using the player. And he's very excited about this, right? He's imagining what type of record he will get. Probably a comedy monologue, but maybe a military march. Again, this really speaks to the 1930s and the culture of recorded music being in the home and all of these new consumer goods available to the affluent. I remember my grandfather had a lot of these these records of military marches, and he even had a few comedy albums and a few jazz albums. And going through his albums when I was a boy was always something I found to be great fun. Um, this section also contains one of three kind of major illusions in this story. The boy, the narrator, doesn't want a collie pup like Tarkington's little boy. And this is a reference to Booth Tarkington's uh, great novel, The Magnificent Andersons, which was turned into a film by Orson Welles. And he's referring to an episode in the story that is about the expense of buying a purebred dog that people don't understand how people have this much money to spend on this sort of gift. And this is a little bit of self-rationalizing by the narrator to say, I didn't want something that was so expensive and so opulent and, and at such an extraordinary price. I, I just wanted a phonograph. And even now we see this narrator defending his decision, though he has a complicated relationship with it, as a man. Right, because it turns out that this record is going to cost the ultimate price. Exactly. And it's the first note of this story that indicates to us that there may be some irony at play, which is going to speak to the last line of the story in a big way. So that afternoon, our narrator and Uncle Bill would walk the 10 blocks into town and purchase a record. And in those days, the family had dinner at 2 p.m. And it was a massive feast, followed by Uncle Bill and the narrator's father drinking coffee and then smoking cigars on the front porch. So more hints of affluence here. But after that, Uncle Bill and the narrator began their trek through the summer heat to the record store. A block from Main Street, Uncle Bill complained of feeling ill, and when they arrived at Main Street, he dropped onto a bench. At this point, the narrator becomes frantic with fear that he won't get his record, and Uncle Bill mumbles something about the family doctor, and then his face is suddenly pale. And the narrator here worries that Uncle Bill is going to be sick, that he's going to vomit, which would embarrass him. And so he pleads with Uncle Bill to just give him the money for the record. He says he'll run to the store and get a record, and then they can go home. Uncle Bill groans and tells the narrator to fetch the doctor. But the narrator here in this moment felt his own power in this situation, and he orders that's the word that Wolf uses, orders Uncle Bill to give him the money, and then he'll go get the doctor. 
there's another great bit of irony in this section and it's uh kind of buried in this section again talking about the family's affluence we're told what the narrator was wearing which was the costume of a french sailor with a striped shirt under my blouse and a pom-pond cap embroidered in gold with the word indomptable and of course this is a french word that means like untamable or invincible but the reference to the French sailor costume also refers to the French naval vessel, um, the Indomptable, that was active from 1791 to 1805, where it was wrecked after being damaged in the Battle of Trafalgar. So there's a little bit going on here. One is this is clearly left over from Wolf's research of alien stones. <laughs> where he talks about naval history a lot. But also that this word is embroidered, that this symbol is instantiated in the world in some way, as the narrator feels his own invincibility, his own power, as his uncle loses his. And it's just a, it's a great another note of irony in the story. Yeah, it's interesting to hear your etymological understanding or definition of that word, because I hear that word and I just am thinking in Latin, where that word has to do with masters and slaves. And that word would mean something like that you have no master. In fact, you can never even become a slave. I don't know if that might have any relevance here, but it is really great that that is called to our attention in this moment when this little kid is acting as a master, when he holds the power of his uncle's life or death in his hands. Yeah, we'll be returning to this in the discussion. Well, with Uncle Bill's money in hand, the narrator runs to the record store, but as he runs he becomes acutely conscious that he has done something wrong. At the store, he buys the first record that's offered to him, dancing with impatience while the clerk prepares his change. Completely forgetting that he was supposed to go bring the doctor, the narrator rushes back to Uncle Bill to see if he has recovered. Uncle Bill looks better. He looks as if he has fallen asleep. People walk by and smile, thinking that Uncle Bill is drunk, perhaps not for the first time, but when the narrator tugs on Uncle Bill's arm, his body rolls from the bench, not asleep, but dead. Uncle Bill's body is laid out in the parlor of the family home, so the narrator is unable to play his dearly bought record. During those two days, the narrator comes to believe that if he were to play the record, he would hear his uncle's voice pleading again for him to fetch the doctor. And this belief becomes the chief nightmare of the narrator's childhood, such that the narrator never plays the record, and indeed he hides it in the cellar. Yeah, I love the way Wolf uses language in this section to portray somebody who's very conflicted about the decision they made, who with adulthood has understood that this really wasn't their fault, but who still is haunted by guilt and shame. The first thing we see is right after Uncle Bill dies, the narrator says, during the two days that followed, I could not have played my record if I had wanted to. And here we're reminded that as a child, he recalls that he wanted to play the record or the record was still some meaningful object for him as it remains throughout his life. But also that in reflecting about it, he isn't even sure if he remembers having want to have played the record. And it's just a great conflict to bring up in a simple sentence. And the next thing we see is that he is genuinely haunted by Uncle Bill, sure that the record contains the ghostly voice of his uncle, which it may. And finally, we're told that to conceal the record's existence, 
he hides it atop a high cupboard in the cellar. And this is uh, a telltale heart kind of moment where he can't destroy his connection to his uncle in this way. And yet he has to rid it from his sight. And it's, it's just really good characterization. It's great prose. I'm not sure that it's science fiction, but it's still really good. Well, we're about to get some fruition here of this this cursed record, which may be the speculative element here. Now we're we're back in the present with our narrator. It's decades later. His own mother has passed away, and he has reoccupied his childhood home. Last night, eating alone in the house, his mind wandered to Uncle Bill and the record for the first time in a long time. And tonight, he is going to retrieve the record from the cellar, though his own doctor has told him not to climb stairs. The record, of course, is right where he left it, covered now by a thick layer of dust. On his way back up the stairs, the narrator has a few chest pains, but he makes it to the kitchen without any mishap. And of course, the record does not contain the voice of Uncle Bill. That's mere superstition. Rather, it is Rudy Valley's 1929 hit, My Time is Your Time. So much for superstition, the narrator writes, and that's the last line of his tale. Yeah, we're going to investigate this last line in our discussion uh, in just a moment. We see here in this final closing action of the story that the narrator has not been able to keep up the fortune of even his parents. And just like in The Magnificent Andersons, this story is also a story about changing times and the decline of status and wealth of a once affluent family. I'm also convinced that the heart pangs that the narrator feels are foreshadowing in some way, and we'll be getting to that soon, and that this narrator is also a big man like his uncle. We're kind of told this a little bit in the beginning as well. So there's a lot going on in this story, and we're going to get into just a few of the things because it's, as I said, an atypical wolf story. I just want to start our discussion by going through a few book club type questions that are going to explore a method of like close reading of this story in some way, which is going to be our method with uh, Fifth Head, I think, as we try to split up that novella. And this is a story that in a lot of ways is a precursor to Fifth Head, but we'll get to that in just a minute. So Glenn, I just want to run through some questions with you. Yeah, excellent. In the beginning, the narrator calls the record Uncle Bill's in some way. It's ambiguous, even though it's described through the rest of the story as a gift, it's introduced to us as a gift. Why does the narrator still struggle with the identity of the owner of the record? I think there might be a couple things at work here. So what one thing might simply be that he thinks that Uncle Bill's voice is on the record. So it's Uncle Bill's record in the sense that that's the record where Uncle Bill's soul is residing, waiting to haunt him. The other thing that might be going on here, though, and maybe this is the more likely realistic thing, is that there's some psychology at work here where refusing to take ownership of the record is a way of mitigating his responsibility and his uncle's death. That's my reading as well. It's a kind of distancing. It's an absolution of some sort. And I think that there's some purposeful distancing going on here in the narrator's conscience, not just between the time of the events, but also his responsibility of the event. And that's a thought I'd like everybody to hold on to, because I think um, we're going to be able to dig into that when I bring up Wolf's remarks on the story that he writes in the best of Gene Wolf. But two more book club questions to go. <laughs> <All right. laughs> I feel like I'm on Jeopardy. You are on Jeopardy. 
What do you think the narrator means when he says of Uncle Bill, I loved him, or at least I would have said I did. Uh, To remind our listeners who haven't read this story, but also you, Glenn, this is in the section where he talks about his complicated relationship with his uncle, how he was frightened of him, but he also loved him. And it's at this point that he says, at least I would have said I did. So I just want to know you what you made of this sentence, because it really jumped out at me. Yeah, it jumped out for me as well. And it is wrapped up in this description of why Uncle Bill was the favorite uncle. And it's because he gives the kids presents and he's generous with his time. I think this line here about, I loved him, or at least I would have said I did, that's an adult reflecting on the emotional experiences of a child. Children don't experience love the same way that adults do. Children's love is maybe sometimes more like the love that your cat or your dog gives you, which is because you give that creature food and take care of it. Kids often only love this way as well. And so as a child, that is what you think love is, is that I feel affection for this person because he gives me cool stuff and pays attention to me and no one else does, which is different from what most adults would describe as as love. And so I think that's all he's pointing to here is that this is maybe the second beat here where Wolf is showing us that this is a story about a man who is reflecting on the mental state of his younger self, of his childish self in this traumatic episode. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And and as you were speaking, I was just thinking what you make of this person's adult life, what you think their personal life is like, how has the narrator turned out? Is he his Uncle Bill in some way? I, it strikes me that this is a sad, lonely, old man who's writing this story, who maybe has never felt love since then, or at least has not found love as a result of this experience. What do you think of that? Yeah, I mean, this moment when he's eating dinner alone in his childhood home, that is a real sad moment. And in one sentence, Wolf tells us everything we need to know about this narrator, that he has been alone his whole life. He's perhaps, perhaps he's never actually known romantic love, or at least not a long lasting romantic love. And maybe that has changed what his notions of love are when he's thinking back about his childhood love of his uncle and everyone else in his family as well. I mean, we're told he's probably a a physically unattractive man, as he is like the rest of the men in his family, overweight, probably bald, um, as as Wolf is probably as he's writing the story. <laughs> but Wolf has the benefit of having a family. We know he treats himself with a sense of humor. He says, if only Uncle Bill could see my waistline now. It's like a joke. He glosses over the fact that he has never made much of himself, and it's not in a self-pitying way. This is a man who doesn't think poorly of himself, or at least has been able to distance himself from the feelings of failure that maybe have plagued him throughout his adulthood. Right. The sense of sadness that we get in that description of him eating alone is is almost a pitying sadness that I have as the reader. It's not inherent in the narrator himself, who, who perhaps has quite enjoyed his life. And it doesn't seem to feel any regret about anything that's happened in his life except for this incident with Uncle Bill. It's a fascinating notion, if true, that the sole thing he regrets, or maybe the thing that he has been able to funnel all of his regrets into is this episode with his uncle, that he can blame his past failures. He can locate where it all began 
and the record is the totem of this. And and there might be a hopeful note at the end of this story where he puts it on and realizes he can move forward. But there's also a sense that it's too late for him. Yeah, for sure. One more thing we might say about the narrator is that he's really become Uncle Bill, not just in the sense that he physically resembles Uncle Bill and also his own father, but that he seems to have adapted the habits of Uncle Bill as well. Uncle Bill is also a a single man who is maybe not working as much as he should and seems to be loose with his money. And those are things that we learn about the narrator as well, that he at least has been loose with money. And so perhaps in some way, either a sense of of wanting to honor Uncle Bill by becoming Uncle Bill, or perhaps the trauma of this episode, or possibly, as Wolf, I think, is actually kind of suggesting here, just genetics. He has taken on the role and almost identity and persona of Uncle Bill decades later. I feel exactly the same way. And I'm going to throw a question out of you in left field just a little bit that's going to address almost exactly what you just said. Is it that somebody's Jesus? Because that's my question. That is your question. But uh, that's not my question about this story. (laughs) I have one final book club question. And it is this, that what does the narrator mean when he says that he felt his power? What is Wolf referring to here What is the narrator going through, and why is this line in the story? What is Wolf trying to invoke by the narrator reflecting on this moment and saying he feels power? What's happening? Well, I took this to mean that he knows that he can extort the money from Uncle Bill, because Uncle Bill is desperate for the kid to go get the doctor, that Uncle Bill would have given him all the money in his wallet, the whole wallet, his keys, whatever the kid wanted, so long as he's going to go get the doctor. And I think the kid realizes that, that because Uncle Bill wants something so desperately, wants that thing more than he does, that he has the power to name the price. That's how I took the line. But did did you see something more there? No, it's just a great line. And I just, it's one of those lines that really jumped out at me that this older man is reflecting on this moment of great tragedy and regret, perhaps, of great shame and guilt, as is hinted at in the story, and talking about it in terms of his power. To me, this is something that really stood out, and yet I don't feel remorse from this short story by Wolf. And this highlights that for me, that there's almost pride in saying that he felt his power at that moment, that maybe this is one of these complicated moments of childhood where he learns something about his, himself, learns what he's capable of, learns his power, maybe in a classic hero trope, hero journey sort of way. But because of the cost of that power, he is afraid to ever use it again. And it just, I think it's a great line of the story. And this probably goes back to this line also about how he would have said at least that he loved his uncle because clearly here this is not what an adult understands someone who loves another person would do in this moment if you love your uncle your primary concern is going to be that he's dying of a heart attack on this bench and that you have to go get the doctor but the kid doesn't behave that way right it demonstrates that what he loved about his uncle was his ability to give gifts was the objects he got from his uncle. And then he gets this kind of haunted and cursed object as a result of his inability to know what love means. Right. So maybe the best way to actually read that line differently than the answer I gave you when you asked the question is actually 
that it's here. That's where the answer to that question is, is that he did think he loved his uncle, but it turns out in the moment where he had to make a choice about buying a stupid record or saving his uncle's life, he chose to get the stupid record. That's not what love is. And maybe that's what he means when he says, I thought I loved him, but I didn't, is maybe the thing that's left unsaid. Oh, that's great. Yeah, I think that's the case. This story is full of of this sort of writing that evokes the complicated nature of the situation while still keeping everybody at a distance, keeping the narrator at a distance from his own emotions. That's kind of the next section I want to go into here is looking at Wolf's two introductions to this story as he writes it in Stories from the Old Hotel and in his Best of Gene Wolfe. And and I should say in the Best of Gene Wolfe, it's not an introduction in the same way it is. It's more of his remarks about this story. So I'll just start with how Wolfe introduces this story in his introduction to Stories of the Old Hotel. It's two sentences. He says, basically, I'm not going to quote it exactly, that this is the story that Isaac Asimov had remarks about. And the remarks were this, at last, calling it like it is. And this is the only thing Wolf says about this story in his introduction to Stories of the Old Hotel, where, where it's collected. Before I move into Wolf's remarks in, in the Besogene Wolf, what do you make of Isaac Asimov's remarks? And why is this the only way Wolf is introducing this story in an introduction that has a lot of great insights into his other stories? So when we do these episodes, when it's the person doing the recap, or at least when I'm doing the recap, I intentionally don't go read any of the secondary stuff. I don't read scholarship on the stories. I don't read the introductions because I'm looking to be surprised here. This story is amazing. This is hilarious. This story works on several different levels. One, of course, Wolf famously doesn't ever want to tell anybody anything about what his stories are actually about or doing. And so this is a great way of introducing an extraordinarily serious story by telling a joke. And part of the joke here is that, of course, Isaac Asimov here in 1972 is the dawn of science fiction. And the best comment that Gene Wolfe ever got from Isaac Asimov is about this not particularly speculative story with the generic comment of that's telling it like it is, right. which which <laughs> I don't know. That's that's something people say when they have nothing to say. I know it's 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 fantastic. I mean, I think there's another sense of irony here. I, and I'm going to suggest to you here in a moment that Wolf is pointing to us two readings of this his of this story in his introductions to them. And this one points to, I think, the irony of the story, the irony laden in this story. And I will say that what Wolf actually says is, if that's not enough reason to read this story, I don't know what, what there is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. As you said earlier, Wolf has a great sense of humor about himself, and it's showing here in this remark. Yeah, it's fantastic. So I'm going to read what Wolf wrote about this story in The Best of Gene Wolf. And each story in The Best of Gene Wolf has an afterword by, by Wolf himself, where he, he is, it seems, a little bit more sincere about what's going on in these stories. Well, it's, it's decades later. So what we have here is kind of a, a metafictional version of what the story is actually about. Well, this is now Wolf re-reflecting on this story that he wrote, much like this story itself is about reflecting on a moment, having different feelings about that moment now that decades have passed. Yeah, and I think that's exactly what's going on in this remark. Wolf writes this, There is very little I can say about this story without sounding maudlin. 
Uncle Bill is based on a substitute teacher I had now and then in high school. The seed of the story came from my father's funeral. As I sat in the funeral parlor, seeing Dad's corpse in its coffin, and only half hearing his eulogies, it came to me that I was next in line. The small children who sat with me now, a little ashamed because their father wept, would sit through another funeral when they were older. Then they would weep, perhaps, or at least some of them might. So first, I just want to say, Glenn, does this remark do anything for your reading? And then I have just something I want to say about it, about how this captures a sense of detachment like we find in the story of the recording. Well, my first thought is, man, Asimov's a jerk. I mean, he has nothing, he has only this real generic comment to say about a story that Wolf wrote about his own father's death. That's crazy to me. No wonder that's the comment that Wolf put in Stories from the Old Hotel. He's trying to own that a little bit there, perhaps. Uh, that, That in itself is real interesting. But in terms of what that comment does for my reading of the story, really enhances my appreciation of the craft. Because... I think the story that Wolf is telling us in this afterward in the best of collection is about him empathizing with two different perspectives on the same moment that he is cognizant of what it is like for him to be losing his father, him as an adult to be losing his adult father. But he's also cognizant of what it's like for his own children to be witnessing adults being weak. And this line about being ashamed of their father crying, I mean, that's here in the story when our narrator feels a sense of shame because his uncle might vomit. And so that's just masterful that Wolf is able to think about that in his real life, what he's doing is thinking about both of those perspectives and then turning that into a story, telling the same event from the perspective of a kid and then from the perspective of an adult. Of course, the beauty here is that it's the same person. That's the Proustian element that you love so much. Yeah, exactly. But again, I want to suggest that Wolf is telling us how to read this story. It's telling us a little bit about the character of the narrator. Wolf, in his remarks here, in the best of, he is the father who weeps, but he's not writing, I wept at my father's funeral. He's creating a separation, a detachment. Um, He uses language about his father's body as dad's corpse, which is a little playful, but it's also a little dark. And it's also saying, it's not his body. It's not my father. Another level of detachment. So as I've suggested, to me, this kind of illuminates a little bit of the nature of the narrator and the level of detachment here. But also maybe, are we learning anything about Gene Wolfe, the man, or is he just playing another game? Is he playing another type of role with his audience? Right. With Wolf, it's hard to say. This whole story might be completely fabricated for all, for all we know, though I suspect, I suspect not. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's just one of those great things where he doesn't ever locate the truth where it is. He's always triangulating or pointing to it in some way, but it's never exactly what it seems. So we've gotten some of the book club questions, the close reading questions out of the way, and and maybe looked a little deeper into the story and where it came from. I just want to take now maybe the wolf puzzle in the story, this final line. And as, as we've brought up in the recap, I think much of this story points to layers of kind of dramatic irony 
in some way. And so we get this final line, which is so much for superstition. So do you think this final line, Glenn, is meant to be read ironically? Is there a good reason to be superstitious for our narrator to be superstitious? Is the voice on the record some kind of spiritual message rather than uh, the voice, literally the voice of Uncle Bill? What do you make of this line? And do you accept or reject the reading of this as irony? And maybe even the other examples I brought up in the recap as irony. Oh, no, this is definitely ironic. The narrator is dead. He dies moments after writing so much for superstition. He is having a heart attack because he decided to go get this record. So much, in fact, exactly like his childhood self thought, this record, if he ever played it, would haunt him, would be his undoing. That is turning out to be the case. I do not believe that it is Uncle Bill's voice. I'm going to take the narrator literally when he says it's it's Rudy Valley's voice. But the song, the title, and the, the line, the lyric that we get here is, My time is your time, which is really, I think, has to be a way of, of saying the cause of my death is the cause of your death. And I think that's that's all wrapped up here. So the object, the totem here, right? This record really is haunted. It is a cursed object for our narrator, as he long suspected. And I mean, there's humor there. There's ironic humor to that, you know, if you go in for for that sort of thing. Right, right. No, I agree with you 100%. I think it's absolutely meant to be the case that it is some message, but it's not Uncle Bill's voice. I think that's really clear in the story. And it's, again, Wolf playing with the object in reality, giving it a symbolic and subjective meaning that has real weight and consequences in the world of his characters. And it's just what Wolf does. This is a great story to introduce somebody who's not interested in science fiction, but to the kind of worldview that Wolf is so fond of in his writing. So now I'm going to ask you the question that just comes out of left field. Uh, is the narrator a clone? <laughs> I wish I'd been uh, been drinking something so that our audience could have gotten the full spit take. That question is completely out of left field. Let me defend the question. Yes, for please. You. I want to hear this reading because yes. I, I don't disbelieve it. I just, But I think you've done the work already. So here's the first instance. This is where the question comes from. And we re- I read this out loud during the recap. While the narrator is, is talking about who his uncle is and who his father is, he describes them all as somewhat portly men with faces stamped in the image of their father. Now, Wolf here is clearly doing some excellent craftsmanship by connecting what the story is about to the language of the story itself. And here he could just merely be saying that all the men in his family are kind of the same in some way, in some spiritual sense. It's not on the page, but it's hinted at. But it also evokes the process of making a record, which is that there is one master copy from which many copies are made. There's one master recording from which the images are stamped. And I also ask this question as we look ahead to Fifth Set, which this has a clear connection to, in my mind, both in this instance of the image of the father being stamped onto the child, and also in the kind of lost object refound that helps craft the narrative. So 
I'll ask you again, Glenn. Is the narrator a clone? So I think that's a really plausible reading. And I really kind of want that to be true because now I'm just envisioning that there's somewhere out there in, in Wolf's mind yet to be written is a story about late Victorian cloning. A sort of proto steampunk novel, I suppose, right? Because this would have had to have this would have been something that would have been germinating in Wolf's mind before steampunk was a publishing category. Uh, so there's a, a lost Gene Wolf steampunk novel out there somewhere. <laughs> if your reading is true, I want that novel to to come into existence. <laughs> so I don't have anything that would necessarily contradict that reading, other than to say that I don't know that that reading does anything for us here in this story. But I think it's fantastic, and I'd like to hear what listeners have to say about it. Yeah, I'd love to hear what listeners have to say. I I also don't know that it's the case in this story at all, but there is some interest in Wolf thematically about this inheriting uh, the family genes. You brought up genes earlier, how he has taken on the identity of his Uncle Bill. Whether or not it's the case that I think he's a literal clone, a lot of this language of the story that Wolf chooses so masterfully does speak to some genetic fate in some way. And this is a, a favorite of Wolf's topic that he loves to play with in all of the novels we'll see coming after this short story. Yeah, I think that's a really awesome catch here in this story, the extent to which all of that is at play. And I really like that you saw all of these connections between this story and the fifth head of Cerberus, because I was seeing in this story connections to his novel Peace, which will be the long work that we get to after the fifth head of Cerberus, which is about an old man who's reflecting on his life. I think that's really fantastic that this story here seems to be a link between those two works. And I think that will be exciting once we've got both of those under our belt to really have a discussion that might go on for days, perhaps, uh, about memory in this period of Wolf's writing. Yeah, I'm really excited to get to that. I just have one kind of final question that will wrap up our discussion, I think. And it goes to what we talked about at the top of the episode with where this story is published, the magazine of science fiction and fantasy, and then also the best of Gene Wolfe. And I think neither you nor I are taking seriously the fact that this is a literal clone. But without any science fiction element in this story, I have to ask you, Glenn, what genre is this story? Is it just a straightforward narrative that got published because of Wolf's name? What's happening with the publication history of this story? Well, I guess the maybe the editor actually did think that this was a story about cloning. Uh, no, I don't really think that that's true. I have to think that Gene Wolfe is a science fiction writer, and so the magazine of science fiction and fantasy would love to put Gene Wolfe's name on the cover of the magazine to sell copies, even if the story itself is, is not a hard science fiction story. Not that Wolfe really ever writes stories like that. So I'm not sure that the distance between this story and many other wolf stories that appear in genre magazines is actually really that great, especially with the element here of the cursed object and the haunting. And I think there's enough here, perhaps in the telling of the story, if not in the facts of the story, to satisfy a, a genre reader. You know, certainly this is a nice, refreshing story to read in between, you know, two stories about spaceships. Yeah, I agree. And I do like this story. It's just not a typical 
Wolf story. Would you have put this in the best of Gene Wolf if you were on the board editing that collection? No, I definitely would not have put it in there. But, you know, Wolf is the one who got to put the stories in that collection. Right, that's uh, true. And I think that points to the seriousness of the meaning of this story for him as something that he wrote in some sense for his father or about about his own family and his perhaps realization uh, of his own mortality as well. Yeah, he seems to not, in the terms of playing directly with his audience and giving them the kind of answers he wants, he seems to not, he seems to underplay how serious or meaningful this story is to him. And yet, I think I'm pretty convinced that in, you know, when he's uh, sleeping at night alone or doing his work as a writer or moving throughout the time of the day in the small and quiet moments, that these are the kinds of things he thinks about and that the only way he can maybe approach them is through storytelling. Right. I mean, that seems to be the way that he is processing all of these feelings. It's certainly not a bad way to to do that at all. But and I think that, you know, when, when a story has that association for you and you're getting to create your own best of collection, you're going to select those stories for reasons that are different than what your readers would do. I mean, think of anything, Brandon, this suggests that we should lobby Orbit to to put out a uh, a, uh, a fan-selected uh, Best of Gene Wolfe collection. That would be a really fun collection to set on the board on, I think, and we'd have a lot of Nicene-style arguments about what gets in and what can, what's left out. <laughs> right, the first ecumenical council of Wolfe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, Glenn, I've covered everything I think I wanted to in this story, so... That's going to do it for this episode. I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDorman. You can find us and our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. Head on over to the Clay Temple forums and let us know what you thought of the recording, um, what genre you think this story is, how absurd the question <laughs> of the narrator being a clone may be, <laughs> or if you have other great insights into this story, we'd really love to hear from you. Yeah, I'd love to know about this uh, this clone thing. And uh, it, maybe it's been a little while since actually we've invited listeners to send in some fan fiction. So maybe send us your version of a Gene Wolfe steampunk novel. I think we'd, we'd love to hear that. I certainly would. <laughs> well, Brandon, the next episode that we're going to record is actually going to be our March Patreon episode. What is it we're doing? Well, I'm really excited about this one. Valerie and I, who don't get to chat a lot on air, are going to talk about... Gilmore Girls, which is a show I love about two seasons of and which Valerie loves all of. So we'll have a lot to say about an early series episode of that show. Yeah, I'm really, really excited for this. Uh, this is going to be a lot of fun for me to, to listen to an episode that I'm not participating in. I really can't wait to hear what you guys have to say about it. Well, the next time here on the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast, we're going to be taking a break from our episode reviews to have a reflective pause before we get to Wolfe's first long-form masterpiece, the novella collection, The Fifth Head of Cerberus. So next time, we're going to talk about some of the highs and lows of Wolfe's first five years of professional publications. We'll discuss some of the prominent themes, and we may revisit some of our more controversial opinions. Until then, we greet you and say farewell. 